Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue our study through the New Testament and the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at verses 20 through 58 this morning. And the subject is the resurrection of Christians. Last time we were together, uh, we did verses uh, 1 through 19. And that was the resurrection of Christ. Now he's going to speak, Paul's going to speak about the resurrection of Christians. Here now Paul turns to the second part of his discussion, as I said in chapter 15, the resurrection of the Christians. And he has a lot to say about it. And probably nowhere else in the Bible are we told more about the resurrection than here. He starts this section with an illustration from the beginning of the Hebrew harvest. And Paul used three uh, images to answer this question, who are the dead that will be raised? So let's begin with verse 20 of chapter 15. And Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This reference to the Old Testament feast is in Leviticus chapter 23 verses 9 through 14. As the Lamb of God, Jesus died on Passover. The Feast of First Fruits was the third of seven yearly feasts that the Jews celebrated. It was related to the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It was kept on the next day after the Sabbath. In other words, it was associated with the first day of the week. The Lord Jesus was in the tomb on the Sabbath after the Passover. He rose from the dead the next day, the day that the priest took a sheaf of corn from the field and he would wave it over the whole field as a token that the whole harvest would eventually be gathered together. So this feast pointed forward to the very day of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reaping of the harvest by the Hebrew people was in three stages. The joyous occasion started with the first fruits. It continued with the great harvest itself, and it ended with the gleanings. Now, all three stages refer to what the Holy Spirit calls the first resurrection, Revelation 20, verse 6, and which the Lord Jesus called the resurrection of life in John 5, 28 through 29. The Lord's resurrection was the first fruits. The resurrection of the Lord's people at the rapture is the harvest. The resurrection of those saved during the time of the tribulation will be the gleanings. So it's important to notice that the priest didn't wave a single stalk of grain over the harvest field, but he, he waved a whole sheaf. And only Matthew shows that how that was fulfilled at the time that Christ resurrected. Matthew says that when Jesus died, the graves were opened. And he said that many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they were coming out of their graves after his resurrection. And they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. Matthew 27, verse 20, uh, 52 through 53. This was uh, the picture of the, the wave sheaf. It's the guarantee that the whole resurrection harvest will take place when the time comes. 
Paul says in verse 23, Afterward, those who are Christ, that is, those who belong to Christ, they will be resurrected at His coming. That includes us. And then Paul gives an illustration from the beginning of history. He takes us back to Adam in verses 21 through 22. He says, For, by since, man, uh, I'm sorry, for since by man came death, and by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So by comparison, Paul saw in Adam a type of Christ. The first Adam was made from the dust of the earth. But the last Adam, Christ, came from heaven. The first Adam disobeyed God and brought sin and death into the world. But the last Adam, Christ, obeyed God and he brought righteousness and life. All of man's problems are in Adam. All of man's solutions are in Christ. Nobody in the first resurrection will be lost. That is, go to hell. But nobody in the second resurrection will be saved. That is, go to heaven. Verse 23 through 28, now we have a resurrection prophecy. Verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The word order here in verse 23 originally refers to military rank. God has an order. All right, he has an order for the resurrection. There's a sequence in the resurrection. When Jesus Christ returns in the air, the rapture, he will take his church to heaven. And at this time, raise from the dead all who have trusted in him and have died in the faith. He called this the resurrection of life, John 5, 29. And when Jesus returns to the earth in judgment, then the lost will be raised in the resurrection of condemnation. John 5, 29 also, and Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. When Jesus comes to the earth to judge, he's going to eliminate sin for a thousand years, and he's going to set up his kingdom, known as the millennium, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Believers are going to reign with Christ during that time. They're going to share his glory, and they're going to share his power. This kingdom is prophesied in the Old Testament, and again, it's called the millennium. But even after the millennium, there's going to be one last rebellion against God. Satan's going to be let loose, and to, again, test those who have truly come to Christ. Because during the millennium, they're going to force to toe the line. All right? And, and so when Satan is let out for that last uh, hurrah, if you will... Uh, then we'll see who, then Christ who follows Satan and who's going to follow him. So again, uh, death itself, the last enemy is going to be cast into hell. 
and, and shall be destroyed. And again, the lost will be raised, judged, and cast into the lake of fire. At the, again, when Satan is let out for that last rebellion. Then he will turn, Christ will turn the kingdom over to the Father, as verse 28 says. And then the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth shall be ushered in. Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus Christ reigns in heaven today. All authority is under his feet today, even though it doesn't look like it. Even though Satan and man are still able to make their own choices. But God is definitely sovereignly in control. Jesus Christ is on the throne in heaven day again, uh, as Psalm 2 uh, tells us. The resurrection of the saved hasn't taken place yet. And neither has the resurrection of the lost. Nobody knows when Jesus Christ will return for his church, but we see the signs. And, and, and Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, know that I'm close. I'm at the door. And so Jesus is at the threshold. And any minute, you know, we could be raptured up. So, again, nobody knows when Jesus is going to return for his church. But when he does, Paul says it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. In verse 52 of chapter 15. We'll get to that in a little while. So, so it would be to our advantage. It would make a lot of sense, you know, if we're ready. You know, when he comes, we need to be ready. Look at verse 29 now. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? The resurrection of the human body is a future event that has you know, undeniable consequences for our personal lives. Now, if the resurrection isn't true, then we can forget about tomorrow. We can forget about the future. And we can live however we want because it won't matter. But the resurrection is true. Jesus is coming again. And even if we die before he comes, he will be uh, we will be raised at his coming. And we will stand before him in a glorified body. And then Paul gives us four areas of Christian experience that are affected by the resurrection. Evangelism will be affected by the resurrection. Now... Getting back to verse 29, what does Paul mean to be baptized for the dead? Now, some people think this means a substitutionary baptism, where a believer is baptized on behalf of somebody else who has died. For, let's say, for example, like a relative. Let's say my, my mom died, and, and, and you know, I, I'm going to be baptized you know, for her. But you see, the church as a general rule has never accepted such a practice. All right? Uh, there, there's no teaching in the New Testament to support this. Now, in the second century, there were some groups that practiced this false substitutionary baptism. But again, the, the church as, in general, and as a general rule, has never accepted such a practice. Now, what Paul seems to be referring to is some form of, of substitutionary baptism that was a trend in Corinth. But it, again, it was just another one of those disorders that Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church. First of all, salvation is a personal matter. 
Only you and God can come to this. Only you can, can re receive salvation. Nobody can receive it for you in any way, shape, or form. It's a personal commitment that you make to the Lord. It's a personal matter that each person has to decide for themselves. And secondly, nobody is required, first of all, to be baptized to be saved. Baptism will not and does not save you. So the phrase probably means baptized to take the place of those who have died. In other words, if there is no resurrection, why bother to witness and to win others to Christ? Why reach sinners who are then baptized and take the place of those who have died if the Christian life is all that there is? Every single person on earth will either be in the resurrection of life and go to heaven or the resurrection of judgment and go to hell. No in-between, heaven and hell. That's, that's all that the person who you know, leaves this, this life, this earth, has to look forward to, heaven or hell. We cry and we grieve for believers who have died. But we should also grieve and just really be, you know, uh, mourn for unbelievers who still have a chance to be saved. The reality of the resurrection is and should be a huge incentive for us to share the gospel. Verse 30 through 32, we see another uh, uh, experience or uh, an effect that um, the resurrection will have on suffering. Verse 30 through 32. Paul said, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily, Paul says. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Then let us eat, drink, and, be, and, and for tomorrow we die. Now, we're, here where Paul says, I die daily, this doesn't refer to a dying to self, like we're called to die to self, you know, for Christ. But this refers to the physical dangers that Paul faced as a servant of Christ. Paul was in constant danger from his enemies. That's what he meant by I die daily. He was in constant danger from his enemies. And more than once, Paul was close to death. Paul is saying here in these verses, why should I go through all of this hassle or anybody go through all of this hassle of suffering, being in danger for Christ, going through this misery and frustration if death ends it all? If that's the case, he says, then let us eat, drink, and, and, because tomorrow we're going to die. In other words, let's party up because there is no resurrection. There is no heaven. There is no hell. But what we do in our body in this life will be reviewed at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, God deals with the whole person, not just with the soul, but also he deals with what we do with this body, the body that takes part in salvation. The suffering endured in the body will result in glory at the resurrection. You see, and Paul said, if there's no future for the body, then why suffer? Why die? Why do anything for Christ? There's, it, it, it's, it's, it's meaningless if there's no resurrection. Then in verse 33 through 34, another effect of the, re, uh, of the resurrection is separation from sin. Look at verse 33 and 34. Paul says, do not be deceived. He says, evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then what do we do with what we do with our bodies? It won't matter. It won't have any effect on our future. Immorality was a way of life in Corinth. And some of the believers that rejected the resurrection in order to justify their sin. That's why a lot of people don't want to believe in God, don't believe in the resurrection, don't believe in the Bible, because that way they feel they have no responsibility to the way they live. No accountability to God. The Bible's not true. There is no God. There is no resurrection. So, you know what? I can do whatever I want. I'm my own boss. I can do my own thing. If that was true. Because, again, uh, it won't have any effect on the future. Immorality, like I said, was a way of life. And that's why they rejected the resurrection. I can do what I want. It justifies my behavior. If there's no resurrection, Paul says, hey, let's party because tomorrow we die. But don't be fooled by those who say such things. He says in verse 33, evil company corrupts good morals. Now, this is a quotation from the Greek poet Menander. It's a saying that Paul's readers were most likely familiar with. The believer's body, the body, the body that, that, that we have, it's the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within this body. It must be kept separated from the sins of this world. And to fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness is only to corrupt God's temple. Now, it was time for the Corinthians to wake up out of their moral sleep, and it was time for them to clean up their lives. The believer who is compromising with sin, they don't have a witness to the people around them. They don't have a witness, a testimony to the people who don't have the knowledge of God. I mean, what a shameful thing to be living selfishly in sin while there are so many people who die without Jesus Christ. Then the fourth uh, effect of the resurrection is how are the dead raised? Look at verses 35 through 48 now. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of earth. 
made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, and as is of the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So, today, we have a natural body. We're all here this morning in our natural body, the one that we were born with. This body is suited to the environment we live in. It's suited to live on this earth. We receive this body from our first parents. All right? Adam was made of dust. We told that in Genesis 27. And so are we. But the resurrection body is suited to a spiritual environment. In his resurrection body, in Jesus' resurrection body, Jesus was able to move quickly from place to place. He was even able to walk through locked doors. And yet he also was able to eat food, and his disciples were able to touch him and feel him. The point Paul was making here is very simply this. The resurrection body completes the work of redemption and gives us the image of the Savior. In other words, we are saved, we are being saved, we are in Christ, we do have salvation. But the finalizing of that is when we are in our glorified bodies when we die. That will be the completion of salvation. We will be given the image of the Savior. We will have a body like His. We're made in the image of God as far as personality is concerned. But we're made in the image of Adam as far as our body is concerned. It's an earthly body. But one day we're going to bear the image of the Savior when we share in His glory, His glorified body. Uh, again, go back to look, uh, look at verse 46 because it states an important principle. However, notice the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then afterward, the spiritual. Paul said, first the natural, which is the earthly body, then the spiritual, which is the heavenly body. The, the, the first birth, our natural birth, how we got here from our parents. The first natural earthly birth, uh, uh, and then the second birth gives us the spiritual, when we're born again in the spirit, when Jesus says you must be born again. So the first birth gives us the natural body. The second birth gives us the spiritual. Remember, God rejects the first birth. He rejects the natural body. That's why he says you must be born again. We must be born a second time in the spirit of God. Remember, he rejected Cain, the firstborn, and he chose Abel. He rejected Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael, and chose Isaac, the secondborn. He rejected Esau, the firstborn, and chose Jacob. He rejects the firstborn and accepts the second. If we depend on our first birth, you know, our, our natural birth, if we depend on our first birth to get us to heaven, we'll be condemned forever. This natural body, this first birth cannot get us into heaven. It is suited for earth. But if we experience the new birth, we're born again, then we'll be blessed forever. And if you are born once, you're going to die twice. In other words, if you're born the natural death, I'm sorry, born the natural birth, your earthly birth, you're going to die twice. You're going to die 
here on earth, and then you're going to die spiritually and end up in hell. But if you're born twice, you're born your natural birth, and then you're born again in the Spirit of God, you die once. And that's when you close your eyes here, but you wake up for all eternity in heaven. You see, Paul knew that these kinds of miracles couldn't be easily explained. It's difficult to explain. So what did he do? He uses three comparisons to help make the doctrine of the resurrection clear. In 30, verses 35 to 38, he used seeds. <clears throat> he used seeds. And he said, when you plant a seed, you don't expect that same seed to come up at the harvest, right? You know, for those who like to garden, you plant seeds. When you plant that seed, that isn't the thing that's going to come up when it, when it blooms. The seed is not going to The seed dies, but from that death comes new life. Jesus said in John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a, <clears throat> unless a, a kernel of wheat is planted in the soul, soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. You may plant a few grains of wheat, but you will have many grains when the plant is full grown. Are they the same grains that were planted? No, but they are still grains. You don't, you, you don't plant wheat and then expect to harvest barley. So also, what comes up at the harvest is usually more beautiful than what was planted. Again, for those who like to garden, and, and you know, when you plant a bulb, for the most part, the bulbs that you plant in the ground, they're ugly. They're ugly. And yet, they produce a beautiful flower when they grow. A beautiful plant. If at the resurrection, all God did was to put us back together again, that wouldn't be any improvement at all. I'm not looking to have this improved. I'm looking for it to be new. Nothing like ever before. It, 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 that, that bulb will produce a beautiful flower or plant. And God, like I said, it's not going to put this back together. That would be no improvement. Besides, flesh and blood, this body, this flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The only way we can enjoy the glory of heaven is to have a body that is suited for that environment. You know, it's like astronauts when they go into space. Their bodies are not suited for space. So what happens? They, they have to wear a specialized suit. You know, with oxygen pumped in and, 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 and filters and, and, and they have to have weighted shoes, you know, weighted shoes, the whole thing. They, because their natural body is not suited for that, that environment. And Paul discussed the details of this wonderful change in the passage that we just read. The, bo the body is buried in corruption. Why? It's going back to the earth. But it's going to be raised with a new nature that can't decay. There's no decay in heaven. There's no death in heaven. There's no destruction of any kind in heaven. The body is buried in, in, in dishonor. That is, it's buried in disgrace. But it's raised in glory, verse 43 says. The body is weak when it's buried. But in resurrection, the body rises in power. It says in 1 John 3, 2, Jesus said, We will be like him. That's exciting. 
we will be like him. And then Paul uses the flesh to describe the difference in the resurrection. He uses it in verse 39, speaking of the flesh. Paul points out the fact that there's different kinds of animals. In verse 39, look what it says. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh. Look at it. A flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another flesh of fish, another flesh of, ver- of birds. So Paul uses the different kinds of animals. So you, you could not breed various species at random. You couldn't breed a, a fish in a bird. Different flesh, different kind of species of animals. The human body has a nature all of its own, of one kind. Animals, birds, and fish, they have their own particular kind of flesh. Here's the conclusion. If God is able to make different kinds of bodies for men, animals, birds, and fish, why can't he make a different kind of body for us at the resurrection? And then, and then there's the heavenly bodies that he mentions in verse 40 through 41. Not only are there earthly bodies... Okay, or terrestrial bodies. These are terrestrial bodies, earthly bodies, but there are also heavenly or celestial bodies, and they're different from each other. Okay? Paul has now moved into the realm of astronomy, and he says that all bodies of the solar system are not the same. The sun isn't the same material as the moon. Neither is, the same, uh, neither is it the same as the stars. The stars differ from each other. There's a solar system. There's a stellar system. There's there's planets and suns. There's one glory of the sun. There's another glory of the moon. There's another glory of the stars. Even the stars differ from each other in their glory. Now, to help us understand what our resurrection bodies are going to be like, Paul takes us to a realm where all our concepts of time and space are changed. He suggests that we now have terrestrial bodies, earthly bodies, bodies that enable us to live on this planet alone. But one day, we are going to have celestial bodies, that is, heavenly bodies. Bodies that will be able, or bodies that will enable us to roam the vast universe of God. We have to always remember that our resurrection body is going to be like our risen Lord's. So our resurrection bodies will experience a change of dimension. Our resurrection bodies, our celestial bodies, they won't be limited anymore by our, by, by our terrestrial bodies that we have now that are limited by time, matter, and space. Our bodies are going to be transformed into celestial, heavenly bodies that will be able to defy gravity, distance, and time. Now, again... These examples may may not answer every question that we have about the resurrection body, but they give us the assurances that we need that we are going to be raised in a glorious new body. God is going to give us a glorified body that is suited to the new life in heaven. And we're going to use this new body to serve and glorify God for all eternity. And we must remember that this discussion wasn't written by Paul just to satisfy the curiosity of believers. Paul had some practical points to get across. And he made them very clear in verses 29 through 34 about the glorious body. If we really believe in the resurrection of the body, 
then you know what? We will use our bodies today to glorify God. And then lastly, the lost, this is the sad part, the lost will also be given bodies to suit their environment, which will be hell. And they will suffer forever in darkness and pain and torment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15 says this. The Apostle John says, And I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. He said, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, as, as recorded in, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done. According to what they had done, as recorded in the books, everything that we have done is recorded in heaven. God knows it all. At, at, so that at that time that we stand before him to give an account, there's nothing that we can say that would say, hey, you know that? God says, I've got it all. He knows it all. But again, it, it's, it's represented here as, as, as the, the book of life. He says, and the dead were raised according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged, all were judged according to their deeds. They were all judged based upon what they did upon earth. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. You don't want to be in the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. Again, it is to our advantage who are saved to try and rescue those who aren't saved from this judgment. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the terror that's to come for those that know Christ, we should be out there persuading men women, of all, people of all ages, to come to Christ. In Jude 20, uh, verse 22 and 23, it says, And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering, rescuing others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to do it now before it's too late. And then verses 49 through 57, Paul speaks of death. Beginning with verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Speaking of Christ. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible, and this mortal must uh, put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the same that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Death. When Paul talks about the new body, <clears throat> we're going to receive, uh, he, he starts to think about our body's transformation. And it occurs to him that that transformation is to be seen not just in the resurrection of those whose bodies have died, but also in those who will be uh, living when Jesus comes. Paul calls it a mystery here in verse 51. It was a mystery because it wasn't known beforehand, but now it's known. Jesus is going to come again, and when he does, he's going to bring with him the end of all things. Some will be dead. Their bodies will be transformed and raised to meet him in the air. This is the rapture of the church. When those who are alive will be raised up and then who, those who are dead, they will come up simultaneously and their bodies will be changed, transformed. Some will be living, their bodies, like I said, will be changed apart from death so that their status will be exactly the same as those who have died. When that happens, death will be swallowed up in victory and sin will be defeated once and for all. The heavenly kingdom is not made for the kind of bodies that we have right now. These bodies of flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So when Jesus returns, the bodies of living believers will instantly be transformed to be a body like his. And the dead believers shall be raised with new glorified bodies. Our new bodies won't be subject to decay or death, pain or sorrow. Death is seen as a poisonous serpent in verse 55, but having its fangs removed. It might be threatening, but it's harmless. Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychology or psychiatry, wrote this. And finally, there is the painful riddle of death of for, for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be wrong. Wrong. Christians have victory over death. They have you know, and, and because of the victory of Jesus Christ in his own resurrection, Jesus said this, because I live, you shall live also. We have victory in death and over death. It's through Jesus Christ that we have the victory. And you know what? We have it today. The little, literal translation of verse 57 is this, but thanks be to God who keeps on giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We close again. Let's just look at verse 58 again. <clears throat> and Paul said, therefore, as, therefore being because of what he just said, in light of what just, he just said, verse 58 says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, notice, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's the conclusion. If there is no resurrection, our labor is in vain. There's no point in going on in what we do. There's no point in serving the Lord. Because, again, he, he's, because he's still in the grave. And there's no point in serving other people. But on the other hand, if there is a resurrection, then it makes sense to do what Paul says in 58. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand on the rock. God's truth. 
You don't let anything move you. You don't let anybody move you. And there will be things. There are things right now trying to move you from your relationship with Christ. There are things that try to tempt you to walk away from your relationship with Christ. There are trials that try to get you to give up your relationship with Christ. There are things that will try to move you from the truth. But give yourself totally to the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. God says, keep on serving me. Your labor is not in vain because of the, insur- the assurance of Christ's victory over death. We know, we know that nothing we do will ever be wasted or lost. Not one drop of sweat, not one drop of blood, not one twinge of pain will be forgotten, lost, or wasted in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows every drop of sweat serves, that, that served him, every drop of blood, every twinge of pain that, that's been experienced by his who served him. That being the case, then we need to keep at it, man. We need to keep at it. Serving God, witnessing for God, no matter how hard he gets, no matter what the persecution, no matter what the ridicule, no matter what the obstacles might be, the victory doesn't lie with the world. It lies with Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your mercy, God. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the powerful evidence of the resurrection. Lord, you defeated death. You conquered death for us that we might conquer death one day in Christ because of you. And Father, help us to heed the Spirit. It makes no sense to not give our lives to you. For this world, this life is such a short time, God. To reject you and then spend an eternity in hell. What we experience here in hardship and trials and toil... Is, is nothing it's but a light affliction Paul said and then to go on into all eternity where we'll never sorrow we'll never weep there'll be no pain no, no decay and maybe you're here this morning and, and you've never made that commitment to Christ or maybe there's somebody watching as we live stream this this service And if you're in your home or if you're here this morning, wherever you might be, and you recognize that that this world is is a mess, but it's, it's exactly what God said would happen. And the Spirit of God has spoken to you to receive Christ. I want to lead you in this prayer right now. It's called the sinner's prayer. If you want to receive Christ, you repeat this prayer after me, but you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. Please cleanse me and wash me and make me a new person. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer, the Bible says your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And um, continue to walk with God. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be glad to give you one here. Uh, you can see me or Pastor Tony after the service and or any of the ushers. And uh, we just encourage you to find a Bible teaching church. If you're close to this one, come. If, you know, if you're not, we'll try to find one for you if, uh, if, you don't, uh, if you're not close by. At this time, Pastor Tony's going to come up and lead us in communion.